Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible today, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, if you would. I want to ask you to pray with me. There's something um, that we want to pray about right now. We live stream now, and we have hundreds of people that are still watching online. And right now, the sound went. And so, and it, it just, these things happen. So, but we believe that the Lord wants the word of God to go out. So would you join me? Jesus said, if you ask together in my name, all things will be done for you. So let's, let's just ask the Lord to help here. Father God, technology is finicky at times. We are frail and we're not sure why this is happening, but we know there's a lot of people trying to listen to the word of God right now. Father, we know Satan hates that. So we pray that you will bring just um, the sound back so that people can hear the word. We know that, Father, even if it didn't come back, your word will still go forth. We can record something and give the word later. But if it be your will, would you show your power? Would you allow the Lord Jesus to exercise his authority to help your people, Father, and all of us as we listen to the word? May the Spirit speak to us and may we grow and be fed and be changed. Thank you that you're building your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, very good. Years ago, many, many years ago, when I first started teaching at Cairn, I remember that they built a home in my neighborhood, and it was actually a modular home, so it had several pieces. Looks like one big home, but it's several pieces. Much maybe like even as simple as a trailer that's a double wide where they just put two pieces together, right? I want you to imagine that two pieces of a, of a, of a structure are put together in one day and when the construction worker comes back the next day, they're separate. There's a 10 foot gap between them. He looks and says, what, what, what in the world is going on? So he puts them back together, next day he comes back and they're separate. And then the third day, he comes back, and they're not only separate, but one of them is crushed and collapsed, like, like it just was blasted by a hurricane. I'd like to suggest that that's a good illustration for the work of God and the work of Satan, because the building of the church is a work of God. The passage we're going to look at today literally says, do not tear down the work of God. The same word that's used of tearing down a home. We're going to learn that Satan's goal is to destroy Christians and to divide them. God's goal is to build up Christians and to unify them. And so if we were to use mathematics, God wants to add unity and spiritual growth. He wants to multiply converts. Satan wants to divide Christians. He wants to subtract people from walking with God. And there are a number of ways he does that, and we've mentioned in the past that in some cultures he uses persecution. I feel very sure that in these days he's trying to use division and he's trying to bring destruction. So I want to uh, make a quick announcement, but I'm going to come back to this at the end. Don't forget that the annual meeting is on video this year because of the COVID. it's a video it's on the website and it's really important if you're a member not only to watch it but to vote 
So I recognize, and I want to sympathize, some of you, to go online is, is complex. If you need help, we can help you. But please be sure to do that. Make a note. We need a quorum. We need enough people to vote. And I, I know it's not ideal, but thank you. So last week, we discussed gray areas, and we touched on the idea of Christian liberty. We said, if the Bible doesn't clearly address something, we have the freedom to enjoy things that Scripture doesn't forbid, whether it's moderation of alcohol or dancing or cards or lots of things. But the thing that we learned is not just about what we want. It's not just about our self-interest, but that God is concerned about unity. And we noted that last week, our opinions and actions can cause destruction and division. So the focus last week was more on our attitude. How should I view someone else who has a different opinion on gray areas? The Apostle Paul called the the people who have a very narrow lane, he called them weaker brothers. He said the people who say, you can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't dance, you can't play cards, you have to wear a tie on Sunday, you have to go on Sunday night, on and on it goes. He called them a weaker brother in in their understanding of Christian liberty. And he said, don't despise them. He said, don't call them idiots. And then he said, the people who, who have a better understanding of Christian liberty should not look at those other people and judge them and say, they're such legalists. <laughs> they're so legalistic. They don't get it. But instead, he said, recognize, just have your own convictions and, and recognize we're all going to stand before the Lord. That was more attitudes. This morning, now we're going to pick up and we're going to talk about actions. How is it that I can in my actions promote unity around the subject of gray area. We're gonna see two things. Number one, we're gonna learn to avoid stumbling blocks. We're gonna learn to avoid stumbling blocks because they destroy Christians and they destroy unity. And then we're gonna learn to imitate Christ whose love promoted unity for God's glory. So ultimately this entire section, Romans 14, all the way down through 15, 13, is all about unity. In fact, look with me in 15.6. Paul says, with one accord, this is his goal, with one accord, with one voice, literally with one mouth, there's that unity, you glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan's no, no fool. He knows that right now politics, the coronavirus, churches, masks, So many of these things are a tremendous tool in his hands to divide, to cause division and strife and to hurt one another. And God's going, listen, more than ever, it's important that we avoid things which destroy Christians and devastate unity. So let's begin in verses 13 through 23. We're going to, we're going to learn that God wants us to avoid stumbling blocks. Now we want to, we want to look first of all at verse 13, there's a command not to cause stumbling. Now, it's important that I, I'm going I'm to explain what that means, but for now, let's just look at verse 13. Therefore, as he said earlier, let's not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now, obviously, that's a figure of speech. Literally, a stumbling block would be to put something, you know, to trip somebody at night, you know, put, put a put a piece of furniture down, they don't see it. But this is a figure of speech. And I want to define a stumbling block in Scripture. There's a lot of 
um, ambiguity. A stumbling block is when, when there's a gray area, something that the Bible does not call right or wrong. A stumbling block is when you practice a liberty, but it could cause someone else to violate their conscience. Okay, so let me say this again. It's when you practice a liberty, but that could cause someone else to violate their conscience. Simple example. Someone who thinks drinking is a sin. Any alcohol is a sin. They're looking to you. you, you you're more mature. You, you've been in the faith longer. You're out on a fishing trip with them. I, this happened to a friend of mine. He was a new convert. He had gotten saved out of alcohol. So he just, no way, I'm not going near that stuff. But he's out fishing with an older Christian from his church, a convert, and this guy just pulls out a beer. Now, it wasn't the pulling out of the beer that was a terrible thing. It was the fact that this brother was weak and he thought it was wrong. But he then thought, well, if he does it, I think it's wrong, but I guess if he does it, it's okay. So then he did it. At that moment, he violated his conscience, and that's a sin. That's not a gray area. Whenever we violate our conscience, that's a sin. That's destructive. And so when we do things that we know are okay, but if someone else is struggling with it, we can be leading them to violate their conscience. It might be as simple as this. Some people actually believe rock music's a sin. They believe it's a sin. You're, you're jamming on your rock music and then you pick up a Christian brother to go somewhere. And you're like, I'm not turning this off just because he's a legalist. So we have this command, don't put a stumbling block in front of someone. Now Paul's gonna, he's gonna play this out. He's gonna say, let me introduce the idea of this, this stumbling block. So the command is verse 14. Now he's gonna introduce the cause of stumbling blocks. He says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. In other words, if the Bible doesn't address it, you can't go, that's just wrong. Paul had a mature understanding of Christian liberty. If the Bible doesn't directly address it, there's freedom. He goes, I get it. I understand that. And some of you do. He says, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, even though in and of itself it's not, to him it is unclean. So even if, if a person says, ah, oh, I think playing the piano is wrong because that reminds me of, you know, whatever, something in my past. To him it is, if you do that, it's sinful. So Paul's introducing the cause of a stumbling block. It's someone who has a conscience that, that's, that's narrow. So I have to bear in mind that I'm around other people who might have different views of right and wrong. And I have to consider that. So what, what's the big deal? So what if, 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 if somebody says, I'm going to dance in front of that guy. I'm going to have a beer. I'm going I'm to play cards. So what? what? What's the consequences? What would happen if I caused someone else to stumble? Well, Paul actually gives four consequences. So he's introduced a potential cause. Now look at the consequences, verse 15. So in this context, remember he said it was meat. So he says, there are some people who think it's sinful to eat meat. So if they come over to your house and you serve them a hamburger and they violate their conscience, four things happen. Number one, look at verse 15. If because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. This word hurt can mean grieved, 
can have the idea of, of well, let's just, just leave it at that. It's hurtful, it's harmful. You're damaging, you don't wanna hurt people. You're no longer being loving. You say, yeah, but I love hamburgers. Are you serious? I'm gonna not eat a hamburger just cause this guy's goofed up in his mind? Yes, because number one, you're gonna hurt him. Number two, Paul, Paul puts a stronger word. He says, do not destroy with your food him. Wow, that raises the bar. You cause somebody to violate their conscience, you're destroying them. And then to, to bring to the very heart and soul of how could you do that to a brother, he goes, him is not just some guy. He goes, don't destroy him for whom Christ died. Wow. Jesus would hang on a cross and bear the agony of hell to pardon one of his precious children, and I'm going to just squash him because I don't like the fact that I have to give something up. Paul goes, don't destroy a fellow Christian. Another problem is that you will then have a bad reputation. You will then be spoken evil of. Notice what it says. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. So I can picture some of these Christians wrestling with that. Seriously? Paul's going to limit... I, I can't just go out to, to, to Denny's if, or to um, Burger King if there's some other Christians around just because that's going to upset them. Are you, do you know what I have to give up? And Paul goes, yeah. He goes... But you know what you're going to do? You're going to hurt, you're going to destroy, you're going to tear down, you're going to wound a brother, and you're going to have a bad testimony. So we'll just leave it at those three for the sake of time. So he said, here's, he, here's the command, don't do it. Here's the cause, you cause somebody to violate the conscience. Here's the consequences. So then he, then he introduces something really helpful. He says, I want you to think of it this way. If you have a kingdom culture, in your mind, a kingdom culture will help you to avoid stumbling blocks. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, the culture of this world is satisfy self. The culture of the kingdom is sacrifice for others. It's really interesting how he brings in the kingdom of God. He says in verse 16, don't let what's good for you be spoken of as evil. He goes, for after all, the kingdom of God, it's not eating and drinking. And I think what he means by there, it's not characterized, it's not primarily about eating and drinking, but rather it's characterized and primarily about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I want, to, I want to say just a couple things briefly here about what does he mean by the kingdom of God? Well, when the Bible addresses the kingdom of God, there are different ways to think of it. It's not, it's not monolithic, just one meaning. So the Bible says, for example, God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. God has always reigned as king over the universe. When Jesus came to earth, he said, the kingdom of God is now in your midst. Well, wait a minute. If, if God has an eternal kingdom, how can the coming of Christ introduce a new aspect of the kingdom of God? 
Well, because the Messiah has now come. He's about to destroy Satan by dying on the cross. He's about to break his power, and he's about to introduce elements of the future kingdom where there will be wholeness and healing and the removal of sin. So in this respect, there's a present aspect to the kingdom of God. And I, I want to come back to that. But I do want to remind you that there's a future aspect, okay? This is what we're praying for. Dear Lord, let your kingdom come. When Jesus Christ returns to this earth, then the kingdom of God will be completed in its consummation. The Bible says in Revelation 11 that when the Lord returns, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of, kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. So right now, the Bible teaches that in one sense, there's a tension. Satan is the God of this world. The kingdoms of this world have been handed over to him under God's authority. He is, he is bringing destruction and he has a dark kingdom. When we become Christians, the Bible says we're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. So think of yourself as a kingdom kid in a foreign culture because this world is not a kingdom culture. The kingdom culture is coming. When, when Christ comes back, there will only be kingdom culture. But right now, we're the minority as Christians. We are supposed to display what kingdom culture looks like. So Paul goes, if you're so worried about not sacrificing, you're missing the point. The kingdom of God here at this time is not about eating and drinking. It's not about what's best for you. It's about righteousness. It's about peace among one another. It's about the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so remember that we as Christians are part of God's present kingdom, and we are seeking to build that kingdom, to win people to Christ, and to build up God's work. And Paul says, in addition to that, if you have a kingdom culture mindset, God will be pleased with you, and most people will approve of you. He just said, if you're selfish and you cause stumbling blocks, you're going to be spoken evil of. But when I go, what's most important is to keep peace as long as it's in love and truth. And what's most important is to have joy and unity and enjoy one another. He says, the kingdom of God's not eating, drinking. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 18. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. In other words, Tom, have a kingdom culture mindset. What's best for others, not what's my right? Okay, Lord, I, th I think I could, could think that through. So, so as he speaks of this kingdom culture, he says in verse 19, so then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and building up one another. Okay? So I'm going, well, I want to do this. Well, does that promote peace? Well, why should they tell me I can't do that? Does that build people up? Have you ever seen children having spent a long time building a sandcastle, right? And then, some, we've all seen this. One of the siblings does what? They come walking up, and for no good reason other than we're all sinners, 
They destroy it, right? And you go, why did you do that? Oh, no, right? And when we see that, it makes us mad. We're like, your brother just, just, just spent two hours on that, and you just destroyed it. That makes us mad, and it's a dopey sandcastle. How does God feel as he's building up his precious saints in love and unity, and we stomp on it because of our selfish interests? You're like, Tom, where are you getting that from? Look at verse 20. Don't tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Follow what he's saying? If you flaunt your, san- your beef sandwich in front of another brother and you start dividing the church and destroying a Christian, you're stomping on one of God's sandcastles. Literally, that's what the word says. Don't tear it down. Just like a building. It's, it's, it's used in other places of, of a building. Don't tear down God's work for the sake of food. Because Paul says, listen, I get it. All things are clean, but... It's evil for the man who eats and gives an offense. And you might say, ah, this is all pie in the sky. Well, it's all pie in the sky until you have to sacrifice, until I have to sacrifice. Now it's not pie in the sky. Now it's like, wait a minute. You've probably heard me use this illustration, but I always thought this was funny. I read it years ago. A chicken and a pig both belong to the church. And after church one day, they go, you know, the church has blessed us so much. What can we do to give back? And the, and the chicken thought for a moment. He goes, you know, I, I think we should just put on a ham and egg breakfast. <laughs> it's easy to talk pie in the sky until I have to sacrifice. Until I have to give up something. Or until, ready? Pardon me for stepping on a little too close to him. Until I have to wear a mask. Right? So Paul goes, it's good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. You say, oh, wow, all right. Now, before he moves to, to the next section, okay, so, so we're really looking at two big things. Number one, avoid stumbling blocks which destroy Christians and divide and cause disunity. Before we move to the second point of avoid imitating Christ who promoted unity, there's just one little thing he adds here, a little personal thing at the end of this section. He gives us a caution to our own conscience. He loops back around, he goes, now don't forget, it's not just what others think, it's deep down, what do you think about this particular gray area? Because we also can be led to violate our conscience. So what he's going to teach us here is if you're not sure something is right or if you kind of think this might be wrong, if in doubt, don't do it. Look how he words this in verse 22. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Now, What I want you to note here is when he uses the word faith here, he's talking about literally, if I had to kind of expand the word faith, your opinion about gray areas. You go, well, why does he use the word faith to talk about my opinion about gray areas? So you could almost say here, your opinion which you have, have it before God. 
The reason is, is because there's a direct connection between growing Christian faith and an understanding of the Christian faith and an understanding of Christian liberty. That's why in verse 1 of this whole chapter, he doesn't say, except the weak legalist who doesn't understand Christian liberty. He says, except the one who's weak in faith. Because as our understanding of the Christian faith grows and as my confidence in, in God grows, and, and I begin to go, wait, the Bible doesn't talk about that. I have a growing faith in, in, in that realm of Christian liberty. But Paul goes, wherever you are right now, hold that. Don't violate that. Why not? Because if you violate your conscience, you're sinning. And anyone who's a Christian knows that's a miserable way to live, isn't it? So he says, happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. In other words, don't go doing something that in the back of your mind you're going to go, ah. And here's why. He says, he who doubts is condemned if he eats. If you think it's wrong, and you see somebody else do it, you go, oh, maybe it's not wrong. You're self-condemned. And that's not just, oh, too bad. That's sinning. Look what he says. If your eating isn't, here it is again. If your eating's not from faith, whatever is not from faith is sin. So maybe a way to think about it is, as you're making decisions on things that aren't black or white, I like to illustrate it this way. Think to yourself, if Jesus was standing right here, how would I feel about doing that? If right after I do this, I were to go to, to the judgment seat of Christ, how would I feel about that? Do I have a, a sense of clarity like, yeah, I'm thankful the Lord allowed me to enjoy that, or oh, I'm not sure. This is a very helpful principle for all of us to work through. And um, There's so many areas where this can... I struggle with some things. I promised the Lord years ago I would fast, and that's not commanded, but sometimes my conscience bothers me. In John Calvin's Institutes, he has a whole section helping converted priests as they struggled with their consciences because they had made vows of celibacy and then they got saved. And while we might say to them, hey, you're allowed to get married, the Bible says so, they were struggling with conscience issues. So this is something as Christians we need to think about and meditate on these scriptures and help one another. So the last thing we're going to see now in, in chapter 15 is, is, is Paul goes, I know I'm asking you to sacrifice. He says, but let's look at Jesus. He says, let's imitate Christ. His love, his self-sacrifice, that promoted unity, and that brings God glory. We need encouragement. We need patience, right? We get annoyed with one another. We, you know, every day when there's a new standard and I can't do this, now I can do this. Of course. And then the church starts weighing in. You can't do this and that. We get annoyed. And so we need encouragement. We need patience. And Paul knows that. So let's look real quick at verse 1. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. In other words, if you have a broader view of liberty, think about these people who are more, more narrow. Now, remember what I told you last week. They don't know this. They don't know that they're without strength. They don't know that God considers them weak. This is one of the most difficult things about people who don't understand Christian liberty and everything's black and white and their way is the only way, is they think they're the strong ones. You compromisers who dance, you compromisers who play cards, you compromisers, there's only a few of us left like Elijah who haven't bowed down to the world. 
they think they're strong, but what Paul says, they're weaker. And it's easy to despise them. He goes, don't despise them, but rather bear with them. And he says, don't just please yourself. Now, the irony is, when the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, I have found that the the second part of that verse, I am very good at. I mean, I have that down to a science. I learned early on how to love myself, right? And so did you. That comes real natural. It's the part about others that can be difficult. So Paul says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. So here it is again. The kingdom of God and and so forth is about building people up. So think about other Christians because that's what we're called to do. So Paul goes, I'll give you an example. Even Christ did not please himself. Now, when Paul uses Christ as an illustration, frequently he'll use the cross, but not always. Philippians 2, when he says, I want you to be humble, he goes, have this attitude which is in Christ. He, He was equal with God, but he humbled himself, came obedient to death. But this time he uses sort of an interesting thing. He says, I'll give an example of how Christ sacrificed his own pleasure for the glory of God. He says, Christ didn't please himself as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach thee fell upon me. You're like, wait, what? Jesus got mocked, insulted, spit on, scoffed, hated. And you know why? Because he represented God. He said, this is why the world hates me, because I testify that it's evil. But all of those insults that came upon him, he really recognized that they're because of God, because the world hates God. So the reproaches of those who reproached you, God, they fell upon me as as a man on this earth. As the God-man, I took it for the team, so to speak, for you. That's pretty cool to think about. And by the way, that doesn't stop because then he's asking us to let the reproaches of those who insult him fall on us. That's why it's ridiculous when Christians go, I don't witness to anybody because I don't want anybody to dislike me. That's proud. That's foolish. They didn't dislike Jesus and he said, they don't like me, they're not going to like you. And if I go, I'm not going to take one for you, Jesus. That's your problem. So Paul goes, look what Jesus did. He endured insults even though It was was really for God. So Paul reminds us, as he draws on that quote, he goes, don't forget to read your Old Testament. Look at verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance or patience and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we may have hope. See, when you read the Bible, ask yourself, it's not supposed to constantly discourage you. It's supposed to encourage you and give you perseverance and hope. And that's God. God God right now is not looking down on his children going, now knock it off, you sorry ones, before I come over the backseat and tear your leg off and beat you with it. He's looking at us and going, my kids, my children, how difficult it is to be unified with your spouse, with your family, with your neighbors, but especially as Christians, with a country that's full of hatred and racial divide and all kinds of tensions. He comes along, he says, look, I am the God, verse 5, who gives perseverance. He will give you the ability to put up with annoyances. Bob was telling me while he was on vacation, he saw a a duplex. The downstairs had a gigantic sign, Trump. The upstairs had a gigantic sign, Biden, right? God gives us perseverance and patience 
and encouragement. He will, now look at this. He, may he grant us to be the same mind with one another. It doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. It means we need to be willing to sacrifice and be sensitive and not judge and not be harsh. So that, verse 6 says, with one accord we may with one voice glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great passage for our circumstances these days. So, so in essence, you go, all right, last week it was about an attitude. Don't judge or despise them. This week it's about actions. Sacrifice for the sake of others. So real quick, a couple things to think about. Number one, have you been holding an attitude of judgment or despising others who have a different opinion on you? Politics. Somebody sent me a, a, a something. Tim Keller made a, a quote where he basically said, abortion is evil, but how to eliminate abortion isn't entirely clear in Scripture. Somebody sent out a, 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 a video. I hope it wasn't somebody from this church, but it basically said something like this. He's a baby killer. Let's avoid that wolf. And I'm going, oh, my word. So politics, racial issues, coronavirus, mass, vaccines, how and when we should gather, schools being open or closed. Don't despise and judge people who have different opinions. Number two, have you been vocal about your annoyances at the government or at the church? Have you been vocal about your annoyances? Have you been disparaging toward others or your leaders because it's not Burger King your way? The danger of being in a democracy is a democracy I like. It's government by the people. It's a form of government in which the supreme power is vested in the people. It's a good system. And praise the Lord, we live in a culture where you can express your views. That's great. There are some cultures you only get to express them once, and then you have to go find where your head is because it was removed. But Christianity isn't primarily about a democracy of getting what we want. It's about blessing sacrificing and benefiting others. So maybe, maybe another question would be, in what areas might God be asking you to sacrifice self-interest for the sake of others? Like, I'm kind of glad I'm not living back then because I love meat. I'm going to tell you right now, I love meat. You can take, if you ever want to take me to that Brazilian steakhouse, I'm all in. I'll eat meat all day long. That would have been a big deal to go, wow, I have to limit my meat consumption. When the Smiths come over, we have salad, right? I didn't mean that, and I just made up the name Smith. Sorry, Ted. I just thought of that. All right? What might, think specifically, what might God be asking you to sacrifice? A political argument in which you need to be right? Especially on social media? Something about masks? Like, they annoy me. Well, they annoy all of us, right? I haven't met anybody who goes, I can't wait to get my mask on. I just feel so much safer. Oh, this is so secure. Maybe even ask yourself, does your family notice that you are sacrificial or self-interested primarily? Which, by the way, I thought on the side as I watch these young moms, I watch my daughter with the four kids, I go, that's pretty much the definition of a mom. Sacrifice everything. 
for the self-interest of your babies. Just in general, does, does your, does your, do, do your, peep, your friends, people around you, if you're single, do, do they sense that you're self-sacrificing or self-interested? So maybe another way to think of it is, as you think of yourself, would you say, I'm more of what you could call a unifier in the church? Or would you say, well, maybe sometimes a little bit of a divider? Maybe sometimes I'm a little bit of a compromiser because I violate my conscience. Maybe I'm a little bit of a potential destroyer. I mean, now that you say it that way. Are you sacrificing anything in order to serve in the church? Like, like I found it grievous when I was told by the children's workers, the first seven people we asked said, nope, I'm not doing it. And I'm sure there are different reasons. And I'm not suggesting someone should you know, compromise if they have a legitimate fear for their health or, or, or they're already in a situation that wouldn't be good to be around others. But just in general, are we sacrificing for our church? Like, I get it. Do I want to watch an annual meeting online? No. Right? But that's what we're asking. That's what we think is best. And then finally, is your conscience making a phone call? I read one time, remember when Peter promised Jesus, I'll never, never let you down. And Jesus is like, you know, yeah, you will. In fact, before the cock crows, somebody once said, the conscience is like a rooster. When you violate it, it starts crowing, right? Has your rooster been crowing of late? And you're like, wow, yeah, I never thought about that. Even though the Bible doesn't address it, just because other people do it, maybe I need to, to dial that back. And if, most importantly, you're not sure you're going to heaven. The kingdom of God is number one, first and foremost, about becoming a Christian. Jesus said, if you don't become born again, you won't even enter the kingdom of God. Somebody was just telling me this week, I asked my priest, do you know if you're going to heaven? And he goes, no one can know that. Well, the Bible says these things have been written that you might know. If you don't know even whether you're going to enter the kingdom of God, we want to help you. We want to show you from the Bible. And if you don't know that, that's a pretty scary place to be. Jesus said, strive to enter the kingdom. Make sure you're going to enter the kingdom. And God offers us that free gift of salvation and the assurance that I'm part of the kingdom. And then God says, if you're part of the kingdom, let's promote kingdom culture. So let us know if, if, if you need help with that. Lord, Thank you for our time together. Your word has been very clear and helpful. Thank you so much for the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Please forgive me, Lord. I'm, I haven't graduated from the school of unity and self-sacrifice. I can be annoying. I can be opinionated. Please help me. This is convicting to me as well, Lord. Just help us to really be interested in unity and building others up and listening and loving bring our church together stronger than it was before not just back to normal but even better because of the work of the holy spirit for the glory of god in jesus name amen well, have a wonderful day may god bless you and keep you this week